The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. All right, uh, well, <clears throat> my voice is holding up, which is great. Uh, two weeks ago, my whole family, there's five of us, got sick at the same time. If you've never had that happen, you don't want that to happen. Uh, in fact, my wife and I got sick at the same time, so there was literally two days where we just kind of sat there and looked at each other. Like, <laughs> which one of you is going to make dinner? Because who feels the worst? <laughs> it was kind of the flip a coin kids just did whatever they want. It was anarchy, really. <laughs> Reminds me of Genesis. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. <laughs> well, hey, thanks, Eric and, and Lori. That was great practical stuff, so I appreciate that, especially from the 1950s, a little throwback. Uh, honey, I'll be waiting. The shoes I can handle, but... A plate of nachos is always welcome. <laughs> so we've, uh, <clears throat> in the first session, we laid the foundations and tried to give you some categories to at least, you know, think through, work through, and some structures to uh, think about. And then we, we uh, had a, a great time with, with Eric and, and Lori talking about family and church. And, and it's really cool when you think about the spheres of government because they all really do overlap in a sense. There, there's a... Uh, there's a pattern that is there and well-established in Scripture, and that's uh, really cool to see how those things play. So in my first one, my first session, I just wanted to lay that um, definition of worldview at your feet, get you thinking about all the ways that worldview matters. So yeah, all that was foundational, and, and I, I wanted you to see some of the problems, some of the challenges that we face at society at large and even in our churches and just some of the faulty thinking that has crept in, uh, and from there... I wanted to propose that the solution is, is developing that covenantal worldview. So said another way, I think when we understand how the Bible is framed uh, and which pieces kind of belong with which parts and so on, we're able to apply it and apply it in ways that I think that honestly the average churchgoer has never really considered. So that said, let's, let's review the model. You have your notes if you're taking them. <clears throat> the first one was transcendence. Um, God being the ultimate and supreme sovereignty. He's the ultimate one, the transcendent one, the sovereign one. He's the creator and the sustainer um, he, of, of all things. And all things, just they, all things owe their origin uh, <clears throat> and purpose in the sovereignty of God. So God is distinct from his creation, but he's also involved in his creation. And so when God gave his uh, law treaty to Israel, when he brought them out of Egypt... He established his sovereignty in a way as the conquering king, the suzerain, as the only sovereign. I am the Lord God. There is no other. So everyone and everything is derived from that first point. And, and the question is, who is in charge? And the answer is God. Who defines everything? Who sets the parameters? Uh, we talked about the war of ideas, the war of definitions, that's really what all of this hubbaloo is about with the Women's March, with all, even the, the, the pro-life march. 
<clears throat> all that is a war of definitions. We want to know who defines things. And for us, we point to the transcendent creator God who made all things. Second point is hierarchy. God's system of law enforcement. It's, it's God's way of setting up his systems, his plans, the execution of his plans. So that's, there, there's an established order underneath all of that. It isn't just that God is sovereign, it's that he is sovereign and he has things the way they should be. Um, man is, sits underneath God's authority, man is God's covenantal man. Um, what needs to be clear with regard to this point of the covenant is that man is God's agent for dominion. God didn't task zebras with the calling of bearing fruit and multiplying, though they do that. Only man is God's covenantal man, and only when he is restored in Christ can he actually achieve it. Okay? And, and <clears throat> maybe this is news to you. Uh, I think it's news to many people. Um, but when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't curse them with work. Right? The curse wasn't, oh man, now I've got to get off the couch. Put down the PlayStation, i got to go to work. The curse was the hardness of it. Work has always been our calling. So Christ is the one who's the leader. He's been established as the covenant keeper for us. We are in him. So who do we report to? No king but Christ. Amen? Third point is ethics. The laws of the kingdom of God. Laws are the terms and conditions of the covenant. Um, <clears throat> law is what the suzerain, the king, expects of the vassals, the conquered people. These are the, the, the stipulations of the covenant, if you will. It's the peace treaty, the conditions that are necessary for this sovereign creator God to be in relationship with man. One of the ways, and Eric alluded to it earlier, is <clears throat> man became in covenant with Satan, so there's covenantal death with Satan, that way there's covenantal life in Christ. Okay, So Jesus didn't die so that you could live. Jesus did not die so that you could live. Jesus died so that you would die, okay? He was raised so that you could live, got it? We die in him. It's his cross is our cross, right? That's, that's the covenant. That's the tying together. So the ethics are all about God's law. The law doesn't save a man, okay? The Old Testament saints were not saved by keeping the law, okay? The New Testament tells us the gospel was proclaimed, to Abraham, to Noah, to all of them. We know that they were saved by grace through faith, right? Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So don't think that the law has ever been set up to try to get people to save themselves. Like God just, ha ha, I'll give you this oppressive thing and you, you could try to save yourself. See, you can't do it. That's not why the law was given. So remember that the opposite of law is lawlessness, not grace. Um, what are the rules of the place? What are the rules of this kingdom? What are the rules of this relationship? That's God's law. That's the ethics. Fourth point is the oaths. These are the sanctions. Um, Deuteronomy 28, 29. Again, look at that later. Those are the sanctions against people who will not submit to God's law treaty. So the gospel moves you from a covenant breaker to a covenant keeper. And in Christ, there are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. Um, faith without works is dead. Fifth point is secession. Time, eschatology, where's this thing going? I, I loved your point about uh, the Mormons in Islam. They do have a very, very, very positive, victorious view of the future. 
okay? They do. If we could get Christians to stop reading Left Behind and start actually implementing the gospel, we would dominate this joint, right? That, that's the point. So, <clears throat> sorry if I've offended you. <laughs> but I, I grew up in that stuff and I used to take that as gospel, and it's not. So, so succession is all about where's the world going? Who does the world belong to? You know, our, our message is, you know, Jesus bought this place. Y'all need to just deal with it. <laughs> and that's, that's where God's um, plan is going. It's God's established kingdom on earth. Now, remember that inside God's hierarchy, inside his structure, um, that's point two of the model, there are the four spheres, self or individual. You have family, you have church, and you have state. So these are God's institutions. Um, each of those have their own jurisdictions. Each of them have their own rules and regulations and purposes. So think of the chart. Uh, think of a chart maybe with God's sovereignty at the top, and then underneath that you have Jesus Christ, the, the mediatorial king, and then under that you have the law of God, and then underneath that you have those four spheres. Um, every person, every family, every church, and even the state is told to obey the Son, okay? So those things all fall in together. They're all to submit to the law of God. They're all to submit to King Jesus. They are all to submit to God's sovereignty as the overarching, uh, arching authority in all of it. So the, the shorthand, I want to try to make this even more easier. The shorthand way to refer to all of what I'm teaching is having an ethical judicial worldview. Okay? Ethical slash judicial. And next to that, you can mark Psalm 89.14. Go ahead and turn there. Ethical, judicial, and then write Psalm 89, 14. And you can turn there if you want or just listen. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. <clears throat> I'm not going to read all of it. The foundation of God's throne is Righteousness and justice, or ethics and justice, or an ethical judicial way of governing the entire universe. All right? So the, the point is, since, since everything in God's creation is covenantally tied to God, think of Van Til's circles, right, in the lines, everything in, that is ever made, everything from every proton, neutron, and electron, to every person, to every institution, Okay, all of those things are tied to God. And, and if that's true, then it follows that God gets to set the parameters for all of these things, all of these institutions, which is another way of demonstrating the principle of no neutrality. You get this right? It's going to change some things for you. The principle of no neutrality. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three 23 that uh, whoever is not with me is against me. Boy, that's intolerant not very loving. I mean, Oprah says there's multiple ways. <laughs> Whoever is not with me is against me. There is no neutral place in the universe, okay? That's why that chart, graph, whatever you want to call it, is so crucial. There's nothing outside of that that's in a place of neutrality, okay? Which is what I say this to our church often, this is a way of, of, you talk about the ethical judicial aspect, there's another shorthand of way of saying this. Everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral. 
okay? Everything is covenantal, what I just described. Everything is situated in a framework. Our, our worldview must have a structure. That's the structure Scripture gives us. Everything is covenantally tied. Nothing is neutral, okay? There is not a maverick molecule, I think Sproul said something like that once, that's out there that's just not governed by God. Oh, I forgot about that, that element on the periodic table that no one knows. Everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral. Everything stems from God's sovereign hands, so it is either in step with God or rebelling against God. There are no gray areas. You're either with Christ or you're against him. Everything belongs to Christ. He bought it, it's his, he paid the payment, it's done. So if you were to ask me to sum up the biblical worldview in as few words as possible, that's what I would say. Everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral, okay? A little easier than the five points, but everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral. Everything, and I mean everything, from kings and peasants to, to trees and oceans, everything is covenantally bound to God, tied to him, because he is the creator, which means that nothing is in a neutral place, including unbelievers, which leads me kind of to my, my next point. When we talk about engaging the world with the gospel, taking our calling as leaders in our home, leaders in our churches, leaders in society, leading the way, okay, we are invading false worldviews. If you want to take a stand against abortion by trying to rescue our neighbors, which is the loving thing to do, you are not simply trying to prevent a murder. You are battling a worldview, a belief system built on rebellion against God, a system with a fancy little title we might call feminism. So behind all of our evangelism, behind all of our labor for the Lord, behind all of our attempts at leadership, there is a worldview we are poking at. But that also means that an unregenerate person who does not know Christ isn't in a position of neutrality. That person is not at peace with God. He is at enmity with God. So we must treat that person as such, not act like he or she is neutral. That's why you get Oprah needs to stop. Can I just say that? This, then she joined up with Rob Bell, who's a heretic, and there, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. But it's like, why did... You know, let's just throw this out, which, you know, that's what heretics do. <clears throat> and, and then pretend like everything's good. You know, Oprah, I grew up Baptist. I know some Baptists, and they're not, they're not messed up like that. And so I don't know what. And then she's in the front row at Joel Osteen's church. Not a church. But anyway, I, I struggle with this because it's like we... People push the neutrality thing all the time. You know, every, everybody has their view of God. You know, Muslims and Mormons and, you know, Buddhists, we're all going to the same place. And there's this neutral, let's try to level the playing field. Nonsense. I want to I I punch a wall sometimes. Can I just say that? All right. But here, here's the thing. Having an ethical judicial lens with a worldview that says everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral, means that you will approach everyone and everything with this fundamental presupposition. You are now, you have a worldview, you are now looking at everything with it. You're not just saying, oh, that's cute and fun, I learned some stuff tonight, and then you just don't apply it. 
You, you apply it. Your job, your hobbies, your family, your church, as Eric demonstrated, and your politics, your evangelism, your discipleship, and so on. If it isn't obvious yet, I'm literally messing with everything you've ever known. And that's why it changed my life. It changes how you view everything from taxation. We, went, we visited D.C. this summer. My in-laws live just a few hours north in Pennsylvania. And we visited, and it was great because we drove by the Supreme Court, and <clears throat> I just, I won't tell you what I prayed, but um, we were leaving town and getting on the highway to head out. And my son, he's eight, going to be nine in two weeks. And he said, Dad, man, why do they take more money from people who have more money? That's not right. I thought, my work is done. <laughs> Son, taxation is theft. Hashtag it everywhere, and you may tattoo that. I don't care. (laughs) He's getting the worldview is my point. So education, raising children, and honestly, what you do in the voting booth. Because this past election, I mean, do we want stage four cancer or stage three? You know, it's like... (laughs) Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's, it's, this worldview is kind of like the Matrix. Remember the Matrix? I had rumored they were going to resurrect that, actually. Um, you kind of get unplugged and you wake up to this new reality. And, and this is what the Apostle Paul was, was getting at when he described what a truly spiritual person is. How would you describe a spiritual person? Just think about it. How would you describe that? Well, well, they read their Bible several times a day. I mean, they're super spiritual. They even have the message version. <laughs> if you have that, throw it out. I'm just, I'm just saying. Uh, get the ESV, the elect standard version. It's, it's better. <clears throat> spiritual person, you know, they, they pray a lot. They give a lot. They serve a lot. They floss throughout the day. You know, that's a spiritual person. But listen, that's not how the Bible describes it, Okay. So go, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2 real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just going to read two verses here. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. What is a spiritual person? Because you ask the average person, that's what they're going to tell you. They read their Bible all the time. They pray. They pray six hours a night. I mean, dudes like Luther, Martin Luther used to do that. And man, take a nap, chill out. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen to this. The spiritual person (gasps) judges all things. What? So judgy. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So Paul says that the natural person, the unregenerate person, doesn't accept the things of the Holy Spirit. The, the foolish person, as Paul says just a few verses before this, is a person who rejects the cross of Christ. We look at the cross, we sing about it, we love it. They look at that and think, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, that's because you don't know. It's folly to the world, and yet it's the wisdom of God. The unregenerate can't understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. That word discerned there is the same word, in the same Greek word in the next verse translated as 
judge. And in verse 15, it answers the question, how do we know what a spiritual person is? Paul says that the spiritual person judges all things. Anakrino in, in Greek, it's, the, it's investigatory questioning. It's hearing a case, discerning the facts, examining things closely, examining things that are at hand. And what are at, what's at hand? All things. So, one of the most ripped out of context verses is Matthew 7.1. You've heard it, judge not. So much for that. <laughs> the spiritual person judges everything. It means you're supposed to have an opinion about everything that's rooted in Scripture. You're supposed to have an opinion on immigration laws, taxation codes, your local ordinances. You're supposed to have an opinion on all of those things. That's the ethical judicial lens. It's testing, it's judging every single thing, every news headline, every point of interest, every political issue, all of it must be discerned through this covenantal worldview. Why? Well, it's obvious because we want to see things the way that God sees them, correct? We want to see things, we want to see the world, we want to be able to listen to the communist CNN and somebody's still awake, this is good. We want to listen to what's being propagated and say, that's not right, and be able to say chapter and verse. And that means that we have to sift through all the humanist garbage that gets thrown our way every single day. It's everywhere. It's even in our churches. So-called pastors, who, their sermon is all about you unleashing that, unleashing that inner champion. I can't find him. I'm weak and daily need Christ. It's like somebody should tell that pastor, Jesus is the champion, dude. But instead of exposing sin and urging you to repent and trust in Christ and his sufficiency, that's the nonsense we get. Secular humanism is the religion of our day. Don't believe it, that there's no religion in America. Secular humanism is the religion of our day. It is uniquely tied to American politics, in such a way that you can, you can see the schizophrenia all over the place. For example, we inaugurate our presidents on a Bible they don't care to use. That's why former President Barack Obama, it's weird saying former, I feel like he's been emperor forever. <laughs> he can give a speech at a Planned Parenthood event and say at the end, God bless Planned Parenthood. YouTube, it's on there. There's a demand for a separation between church and state, which really they mean morality in the state. State, the need to get into moral issues. Yet why do we say God bless America? Why does that continue to be used? How can we possibly invoke God's covenant blessings while we refuse to obey him as a nation? And when you have a covenantal worldview, you get to wade through all the nonsense and see things for what they really are. You really do. And that's why having these five points in place is a must. Satan has a parody model. Did you know that? He can't be God, so he copies God. That's all he knows how to do. He, Satan is the plagiarist. That's who he is. He was successful in getting Adam and Eve to break covenant with God in the garden and thus join forces with him, but he was unsuccessful in getting Jesus to covenant with him. Jesus is truly better. 
Yet Satan continues to give a parody covenant. He likes to think that he's the transcendent sovereign, asking people to pledge their allegiance to him. That's point one. He's really good at setting up a centralized structure and hierarchy, enticing sinners with things he cannot give, like your local abortion mill. That's satanic. That's point two. Remember, the, remember when Satan tried to uh, give some things to Jesus? Because he's so generous. If you do this, I'll give you this. I'm so great at giving things. The kingdoms of the world. Remember, he, he wanted to give, give, give Jesus the kingdoms of the world. What, what in the world did Jesus come to get? The kingdoms and the nations of this world. Why didn't Jesus just go with Satan? Because Jesus knew that Satan offered a parody. It wasn't the real deal. Satan was trying to give something to Jesus that did not belong to him. So everyone likes to spend other people's money, right? It's so much easier, isn't it? Jesus wants to get the nations, but not until he went to the cross first. So keeping going with the model, point three, ethics. What are Satan's ethics? Anything that goes against the law of God. It's the exact opposite of God's law and Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods. Satan's like, you are God. Y'all can be gods. This is great. God, God only grants Satan a little bit of a leash. So don't give him as much credit as many people do. But that's Satan's ethics. Get pleasure however you see fit, right? The porn industry is Satan's favorite. It promises no harm and tons of fulfillment. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and what? The pride of life. That's the ethics of Satan. What about point four? Oaths or sanctions. The only way to make Satan mad is for a sinner to be converted. That makes him angry. Otherwise, Satan promises no harm, only pleasure. Satan doesn't have ultimate power. He's a created being. He cannot accuse us anymore in heaven. He was cast down. He cannot deceive the nations any longer. Jesus said in Matthew 12 that he came to bind the strong man. Satan has no sanctions for those to belong to him because he has nothing he can give them. Nothing belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's. And that's good enough for him, though. Point five, covenant secession. This is the issue of time. Satan knows his Bible better than most Christians. He knows that the eternal lake of fire awaits him. The only thing that he can try to do is buy time. That is, kind of throw a kink in the wheel of God's redemptive history. So he'll kick and scream, but since Satan is not eternal, he is a creature, he will be covenantally cast off, burned for eternity in the lake of fire. There is no hope for him. Now, why go through all that when it comes to Satan? The parody models are all around you. Okay? No neutrality. Either something's in line with God's structure or it tries to do it the opposite. It flips it on its head. When you assess the humanist culture and you begin to peer behind all of the political rhetoric, you begin to see these things pop up in some form or another. Let's consider the sphere of the state. Um, according to Romans 13, 1-7, the place where Paul outlines what godly civil government should look like, unlike the pagan Roman government of his day, we find that civil government is God's idea. It's his covenantal sphere. Just like the family, just like the church, just like self, individual self. Um, civil government bears the sword, and it is the magistrate's job to rule in accordance to God's law. Why God's law? Because man's laws are arbitrary, they're oppressive, they're cumbersome. 
Besides, Paul says in Romans 13 that the magistrate is to punish evil. And how do you know what evil is apart from the law of God? You don't. It's arbitrary. At any rate, the state is not charged with handling the scriptures. That belongs to the family, self, and the church. The state is not charged with healing the nations. The Bible says that that role belongs to Christ, who is by name in Revelation the healer of the nations. The state is not charged with the task of education, welfare, and so on. Those things belong to individuals, families, and churches. The point is, whenever the state tries to usurp God's clear lines, things go bad. Like the mess that was debacle 2016, that didn't just happen and, oh, well, that, that's unfortunate. She should probably be in jail. <laughs> Those things happen because there's a rivalry of worldviews. Leaders and tyrants and despots, they don't want to serve God, so they attempt to dethrone him, make themselves transcendent. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2 real quick. I'm going to try to wrap up. Psalm 2. You can tell when someone's being slick. Notice I said I'm going to try to wrap up. I didn't say I was. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I think God was laughing during this election season, by the way. Laughing. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Greg Bonson says, Did Jesus forget to ask? You shall break them, the nations, with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Be warned, President Trump. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Listen, this is precisely the problem with current American politics. Neutrality is paraded, but as we've seen, neutrality is impossible. You can't mess with the covenant. You can't mess with what God has instituted and expect things to go well. You can't expect things to go in your favor when you mess with point three, the ethics of God's covenantal world. Listen, justice is a tremendous problem right now. A tremendous problem. The Bible says in Deuteronomy and other parts of Exodus, that, that, the book of Exodus, that Charges are to be established by the witnesses, two or three witnesses. Innocent until proven guilty is biblical, okay? Due process is biblical. The right to remain silent is biblical. Like, Christianity gave this nation what it has. The right to remain silent, all, all these other amendments. But what happens when all of that is thrown to the side? You end up with America. Debt, prisons, you think slavery's over? Visit a prison. Which means that God will bring sanctions, point four of the model. 
He will bring sanctions to bear on nations that refuse to worship and serve him. People say, you know, God's going to judge America given all this nonsense. Usually I reply, um, this is the judgment. God won't rain down fire like Sodom. He could. I'm not saying God can't do something, but his wrath, according to Romans 1, is revealed from heaven when he hands people over. When his hand of grace and restraint is lowered and he gives people over to the lust of their flesh, the wrath is the giving over, the turning over to people to what they want. You want to redefine what gender is? Go ahead. Those are his sanctions for covenant breakers, giving them what they want. Fine, you, you, want, to, you want to try things without my law and my universe? Have fun making up your own and you'll see rioting in the streets. Hilarious. <laughs> the march that was mentioned, these people are busting the windows of organizations who actually support their cause. It's like, that's the definition of being an idiot. <laughs> no thought, just unrestrained, unbridled sin. Question for you, and I'm going to put you on the spot and make you feel all weird and stuff. It'll be great. Is, is religious freedom in America important to God? If you're thinking it's a trick question, it so is. Is religious freedom in America important to God? Not if we take seriously the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God isn't okay with people worshiping Allah. God isn't okay with secular humanists worshiping themselves and nature as God. God is a jealous God, and he will not allow us to have things our way forever. Why do I bring this up? Listen, there, there are far too many ways in which our mission has been compromised. If we are to disciple the nations and teach them obedience to God, we have to get some things in order. We can't have the civil religion of Americanism blended up with our Christianity. We just can't do it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I love our country. I take issue with American exceptionalism, though. But I love where I live, right? I mean, I like hot dogs on the 4th just as much as you do. I thoroughly enjoy lighting fireworks for my kids. But I'm a Christian first. I'm not an American first. And when the covenant model is all muddied up, this is what you get. You get compromise. When the church compromises, then we lose. I mean, not ultimately, but maybe in this generation. It takes one generation to jack this thing up. Like, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Why? Because the first generation was gone. They couldn't hang. I know what the objections are. Some of you may be sitting there thinking right now, man, this guy is way off his cracker barrel rocker. We're supposed to just preach the gospel. What's this talk? Politics. Why is he talking about all this other nonsense? Let me ask you, how many preach the gospel today? Okay. Did you eat lunch? Why would you do such a thing? You're supposed to just preach the gospel. How many of you drove here? Why? Why do you own a car? You're supposed to just preach the gospel. You get my point. No one just preaches the gospel. And guess what? God doesn't expect you to just preach the gospel. And that's what most Christians think our only duty is. God made us to engage the world in a variety of ways. 
It doesn't mean that we take the asceticism route and sell our stuff and move to a com- commune. It simply means that we, we have to be biblical in all of our dealings, okay? So if you're, if you're single, like big godly single person, why well, no one ever told me that. Husbands, wives, children, do what you do. Honor God with what you have. It's like, it's like we don't even remember that Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. So I can hear another objection. You know, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. <laughs> Tell that to people like the prophets like, like, like Isaiah who was sawn in two. Tell that to John the Baptist who had his head cut off because of a sensual striptease. Tell that to Jesus who took on flesh, was murdered by lawless pagans, and died a gruesome death. What Paul was saying in Ephesians is that our battle isn't only against flesh and blood. That in our advancement of the gospel, there are spiritual realities behind all of the flesh and the blood. Let's apply it a little bit more and we'll get close to wrapping up. Take, for example, the Holocaust of abortion. Millions upon millions of our neighbors are being led to the slaughter. How does a covenant worldview apply to that? It's simple. A, a father or mother doesn't trust the sovereignty of God, point one. They're confused about the structure of God's world and his plan for the sphere of family, point two. They don't have an ethical grid, or at least one they trust, that's point three, right? The stigma has been removed. They see no ethical repercussions or sanctions for killing their child, so why not? It's not like the government's gonna come in and do justice and put their murderous lives to death. That's point four. What about, what about the view of the future? Point five, they've literally castrated their posterity and they are now impotent to further their worldview. God is faithful to a thousand generations. Satan is not. That's why the sexual jihadists won't win in the long run. They can't reproduce, and those who are able to do so because they agree with that, even if they do agree with that worldview, they sacrifice their children on the altar of convenience. So every single issue, it doesn't matter what it is, every single issue boils down to these terms and conditions. Why? Because that's how God made the world. No matter what you see in your Facebook news feed or what you see on television, use this filter to help you be biblical, a biblical Christian. Dare I add some sort of emphasis, a consistent biblical Christian. I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the church will win in history. Okay? The church will win in history. I don't know all of you, but I do know that many, many people are discouraged at what is happening um, in various levels. Um, Some so-called evangelicals think that everything's fine now because their candidate won. Suddenly, the world's not gone to pot. Interesting. That, that, That feeling of relief is a further judgment on their stinking idol. But a lot of people are just, just discouraged. They don't see a way out of this cultural disaster. You know, they see the headlines and notice that our country is quite divided. Can I just encourage you tonight? Jesus is on his throne. Do you know what Bible verse in the Old Testament is most quoted in the New? Anyone know? I'll read it for you. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, David is writing about his Lord and how God 
the Lord said this about his Lord, David's son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's David's son. He's David's Lord. After his death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand. And the New Testament literally can't get enough of this reality. It is quoted several times, and in it, the promise is that not only will Christ sit on the throne, God will make Christ's enemies a footstool. So my admonition would be for you to piece this together with the promise of 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is ruling and reigning. He's putting his enemies under his feet. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ won't step off his throne until he's already defeating his enemies. The last enemy is death. So take heart, friends. The tomb is empty. Christ is king. Engage the world around you with this covenantal thinking. And may the Holy Spirit be with you as you seek to press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory and the praise and the honor because you are the only one worthy of it. No man is worthy of such honor. No man is worthy of praise. The only man is Jesus. So we exalt him tonight. God, help us to think through these things and help us to be on mission for your glory in all spheres of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. <laughs>